Good morning. A new clock that I can see. So we should finish on time. It's not a promise, that's just an observation. <laughs> Look at Matthew chapter 1, first book of the New Testament. Look at the first chapter of the first book. Matthew chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 18 to 25. One of what we call the Christmas stories. Uh, in one of the songs we sang, it talked about the advent. Advent means the coming of something. So this chapter here is going to talk about the advent of Jesus or the coming of Jesus. So normally we celebrate advent during advent season. If you have a problem with the word advent, you can use the Catholic word Christmas if you'd like. That makes you more comfortable. But I prefer Advent, which is more of a biblical word. And it also expresses what we're talking about, which is someone coming to get us and coming to save us. And so we have here the Advent or the Genesis of Jesus. Remember, the book of Matthew is written by probably by a a person named Matthew, but we're not really sure. But whoever it was, they were a Jew, a follower of Jesus. And their goal in the book of Matthew is to show Jews, God's people, that Jesus is the Messiah. The Jews have been looking for the Messiah for hundreds of years, thousands of years, someone to come to fix things. And Matthew is saying, that person that you were looking for, the Messiah, the chosen one, the Christ, that person is Jesus. And let me show you how I can prove that. So as we go through the book, we're going to see that who Jesus was, Messiah, and what he did as the Messiah. So the chosen one, you need to identify the chosen one, and then what were they chosen to do? So that's what we're going to find out in the Bible, and specifically in this book, the Gospel. And a Gospel is a collection. Uh, It's an author using historical and and teaching stories, true events, and also teaching parables to bring together, to make a point. And the point is, Jesus is the Messiah, and he's come to save his people. So, we're going to see three things here. So in the, in the beginning of the book, last week, when we started, it talks about Jesus' family tree, sort of how we got to Jesus, the, the family that brought us to the point of Jesus' birth. And then in this passage, we're going to look at his actual family that he lived with. And both these things, and specifically this chapter, it shows us Jesus is the Messiah because of what we know about his birth, his, birth, his origin. Okay, so verse 18 Now, the birth of Jesus, and that word birth is the same word that we use for Genesis. Literally, if you read it in Greek, you would say, now the Genesis of Jesus, or the beginning of Jesus Christ. And that doesn't mean, right off the bat, say that doesn't mean Jesus began to exist at this point. It just means that the person that we know as Jesus became the Christ at this time. Right? He was the Son of God before that, but he was the Christ at this point. So now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child from the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought on these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, Son of David, 
Do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, and this is a quote from Isaiah chapter 7, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. So this story focuses on the man, uh, the man named Joseph. If you go over to the book of Luke, it focuses on Mary. So two people here, Mary and Joseph, sort of the, the people who raised Jesus. This is the story of Joseph. Uh, the book of Luke has the story of Mary. So in this, God wants us to know about someone named Joseph and what he did and how that relates to Jesus and how that sort of comes together to show who Jesus is. So we're going to see three things in this passage. Number one, Joseph's example. And then more importantly, Jesus. Who is Jesus? And thirdly, what did Jesus come to do? So we're going to look at Joseph and then we're going to look at Jesus. And it's going to show us two things. It's going to show us how to live and also who to look to. So, Joseph's example. Of all the people in the world that ever lived and ever would live, Joseph got to raise Jesus. God had a plan from eternity that he was going to send a Messiah to grow up in Israel and then save Israel, which means he had to have a family. So he had to choose two specific people out of all the people who ever lived and ever would live to bring up Jesus. Now, as you would expect, God chose carefully. And we know Mary, we sort of know her faith from the book of Luke. But this is going to tell us about the man who adopted Jesus. And it, it tells us that this is a good example of what you should be. If you hadn't noticed, there's a lot of men in America who are not good people and who do not act well, do not act like they should. But a bigger problem than people being bad, men being bad, is men not knowing how to behave. Being told that to be a man means to be things that are wrong. That's the bigger problem. People are always going to do bad things. You go back 2,000 years, and you're going to find men doing bad things. But the real problem is men who don't know how to behave. They don't know what it looks like to be a man. How does this affect you? Well, if you're a man, it's obvious. But if you're a woman, it means you don't know what to expect in a man. You don't know what to raise your sons to be or to encourage your husband to be or to demand from other men. So the women in this church need to know what a man should be so that they can confront men who aren't that way. You see how it works both ways? A man must know what he should be, and a woman should know what a man so we don't accept bad behavior. If you look to the world for examples of what a man should be, you're going to get the wrong answer. So what do we do? We look to the Bible. And so God gave us an example of what a man should be. He's not perfect, but it's an example. How, so Joseph's example is how to be a man. 
the way God wants men to be. So Joseph was chosen because he's an example, right? That makes sense. For the adopted father of Jesus, uh, God chose someone that we can look to. And so what do we see about uh, Joseph's example? Well, first of all, you have to understand what it means to be betrothed. We don't really use that word, do we? Did you propose to your wife and say, I'd like to be betrothed to you? No, because you're married to her, and she would have said no if you'd said something weird like that. So what does this betrothal mean? Well, it's, it's, we use that word betrothal because it's not exactly like an engagement like we would think of. So in Jewish culture, and in Jewish, uh, the world at this time, your wife would be selected for you. Your husband would be selected for you by your parents and your family. Sometimes when you were just both children. There's not a lot of choice involved. And so it was often where maybe Joseph and Mary, they were probably knew each other because it's small towns. Their parents said, Joseph, I, you're seven years old now, and we've decided to, to pick your wife for you. And so that was like the first step. The second step would be when they're both grown, they get engaged, betrothed to each other. So we have engagements, but engagements in our culture don't mean that much. You can break them off and it doesn't mean anything. But in Jewish culture, you would be engaged for 12 months, and that was binding. You didn't live together. You didn't even, and in some cases, you didn't really even have, especially in, in the Galilean area, you wouldn't even really talk to each other. It was a formal agreement. But it was just as binding as marriage. So that's why it says here they were betrothed, and then he later says he was going to put her away secretly. That means he had to divorce her. He never, didn't even know her that well. But in Jewish culture, for 12 months you were betrothed, and that was a binding, you were called married. And at the end of 12 months, you would have a ceremony, and then the wife would move into the husband's house. And that would be the sort of what we understand to be marriage. Consummate the marriage, and then they would go forward as husband and wife together. So during this 12-month period, they were married but weren't together. Now, if there's one thing everyone knows about being married is that you don't get with other people. And yet, when they were betrothed, before they came together, so before they moved in together, she was found with child. Uh Uh-oh. Doesn't take much to figure out what happened, right? So now Joseph, who's a decent guy, he's never done anything wrong, he's been faithful. This woman that he doesn't even know that well, that he's supposed to be married to, is pregnant. And it's not his. How does Joseph react to that kind of news? The kind of news that in a family-centered culture, where you literally have a bloodline that you're protecting, is devastating. How does a man react to that kind of betrayal? So Joseph said, I've been betrayed. Before we even got started, I've been betrayed. My life has been turned upside down. How does he react? The Bible says he was a just man. Now, in the Bible concept, justice always means in relation to one thing, God's law. So when it says he's a just man, that means he obeyed the law, God's law. Now, in Deuteronomy, it gives the exact answer for Joseph's problem. You find the woman who betrayed and undermine the whole society. You take her to the door of her father's house, and you stone her. That was Jewish law. Now, 
we're not teaching out of Deuteronomy, so we're not going to get a lot into that, but that goes along with a kind of society where the, fa- where the whole society is built on marital faithfulness. And so her behavior would have actually destroyed the society and culture they're in. But either way, that was the law. The Jewish law was to kill Mary. Joseph is a just man. He can't marry someone who's betrayed God and the family and society. That's what the law says. So Joseph said, whatever I feel or think or want, I do what God says. And there's the example. It's not kill people or divorce them. It's do what God says. And that depends on you saying, I trust God more than me. Now, men are notorious for being very confident about their opinions, aren't they? They're not going to ask for directions. Know the way. See, that doesn't really apply anymore because of like sort of like GPS and MapQuest and Google Maps. But back in the day, you drive around for a long time before you ask for directions. Maybe that wasn't you, but there were other things. Men are raised to be confident and to be right all the time. And to sort of, that's sort of the idea of a man is to just step forward, make decisions, and not back down. But what's Joseph do? He doesn't decide what's right. He obeys. Men, true biblical men, the first thing they do when encountered with problems is not try to figure them out. They say, what does God say about this? Look in verse 24. Then Joseph, after he's been given a new revelation by the angel, so God has given him a new word. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Men who don't obey God, who don't read the Bible, follow the Bible, are not true men. They're not real men. What does a real man look like? He reads the Bible, he believes it, he obeys it. Now, that should subvert a lot of cultural ideas. Because we, when we say a real man, we follow it with some sort of cultural thing. A real man hunts. A real man works on cars. A real man does this, this, and this. God doesn't care about that kind of stuff. A real man obeys God. And not in sort of an abstract sense. Joseph didn't say, I wonder what God thinks about this. He looked at the Bible and he said, a just man, I cannot marry him this person I'm engaged to. I can't. God won't let me. I know it's going to change my whole life. I've been planning on this. This has been part of my life for years. The entire family is going to know about it, the entire town. Everyone's going to know about this. You don't hide this. Divorce before you even got together. But Joseph said, what else am I going to do? Disobey God? Yeah, it's going to be terrible, but my other option is to say, God, I don't care what you think. So he's a just man, and so he says, I have to divorce her. And technically stoner. But look what else he is. And a just man and not wanting to make her a public example. So real men don't just say, this is right. Who cares what people think about it? Who cares if it hurts anybody? We're just going to do the right thing no matter what. Yes, but what about the and part? He's a just man and he's compassionate. You see, it was technically legal for him to kill her, but it wasn't required. There was another option where you could have a secret divorce. 
you only needed two witnesses and a bill of divorce. And then no one really knew what happened. So Joseph had a choice. Do the right thing and hurt as many people as possible, or do the right thing and hurt as few people as possible. In other words, he wasn't just thinking about doing the right thing, because that's a trap men can fall into. They do the right thing no matter what it, they don't care about the effects it has on people. So in other words, the right thing becomes more important than people. And you step on people in order to do the right thing. But what Joseph shows us is that a real man is both just and concerned about truth and compassionate. He looks for a way to protect and help the people around him. He cares about Mary and what it would look like for her to be exposed as an adulterer. You see, that doesn't help him any. A public divorce shows everybody that she was wrong and he wasn't. A secret divorce, it helps Mary, doesn't it? So a true man does what Joseph does. He does the right thing, and he does it in a way that helps as many people as possible. He cares about other people. So he was minded to put it away secretly. But the biggest thing here about Joseph is that Joseph doesn't ever do what he wants here. You notice that? So what did Joseph do? He's a just man. He obeys the law. And then he thinks about Mary and tries to that's going to help her. Then a dream comes and God says, you should marry her. And what does Joseph do? He marries her. Someone who everyone's going to say, wait a minute, she's pregnant and you're not together yet. So you broke, I guess you're those kind of people. But what did Joseph do? Not what was best for Joseph. You see, at no point in the story does Joseph ever get what is best for him. And that's what men do. True men have the right to sacrifice their power for others. That's what it means to be a man. See, men are like, we have rights. Everyone's taking away our rights. They're not letting, you know, they're telling us not to be this and nothing. We can't do anything. No one will let us be real men. But look what Joseph does. Here's what he had the right, the gift to do. He lived in a patriarchal society where Mary didn't divorce Joseph. Mary had no power here. Mary did whatever Joseph was going to do. Joseph's power dictated Mary's life. And unfortunately, or fortunately, however you look at it, this is the way it's always been, this is the way it always will be. Men will have more power in the world. That's just fact. For whatever reason, biological, social, cultural, every culture you look at, men rise to the top through violence, through manipulation, through whatever reason, patriarchy is human. It's not Western culture. It's not Eastern culture. It's just to be human as you see men taking control and using their power and controlling the world. And women are the victims most often. So given that fact of history and of human nature, what does Joseph do with it? And what does God want us to do with it? You take the power you have, and you always use it to help others. And that's what Joseph does. He sacrifices his power, or he doesn't sacrifice his power. He uses his power to help Mary and the baby, not to help himself. And so when you see a man using his power to make himself better, you should say, well, that's not what real men do. Real men use the power they have to help those without it. Men are biologically, normally, physically stronger. 
that doesn't mean they get to use that strength to get what they want, even though that's usually what happens. A real man uses the strength he has to protect people, to lift people up. You see, now Mary is not a divorced woman with a child. She's a married woman with a child. So what Joseph, the choices Joseph made, raised her up into a status that was accepted, that was welcome. Is that what men are doing? Or are they sort of like, well, I'll help you as long as I'm protected. As long as my reputation is okay. See, Joseph gave up his reputation to help Mary. He sacrificed his own reputation, and now they have a child before they're married, and everyone knew it. Instead of divorcing her and protecting his reputation, he gave up his reputation to protect her and to raise her up. Is that what men do in this world? No, but that's what they should do. And yes, that's going to cost you, and you're going to suffer, and you're going to have problems, and you're not going to have as much as you want, men, but you will be what God created you to be. It's got to be a conscious choice. And women, you should expect no less from men. Do not let men be, boys will be boys. That's the problem. And women have been trained to accept bad behavior because boys will be boys. But in a church, the women accept what God says and encourage and, and press the men to be what God told them to be. Men sacrifice. Joseph is an example of what we should be, someone who gave up everything to help others. Someone used whatever social power he had to raise up those who didn't have it. Someone who sacrificed his own good for others. That's what men should be. So we should expect in men, as we should condemn when we don't see it. But you know, this passage is not really about Joseph. It's about Jesus. Isn't that what the book is about, about showing who Jesus is? So the whole point of Joseph brings us to the situation now that we have with Jesus. Because if this had been a normal issue, there wouldn't be a need for Joseph. But because of the unique scenario here, unique system, the unique plan that God has, Joseph is necessary in one sense, because where does the baby come from? Where does God's Messiah chosen one? How does that person enter into this world? And so it shows us the genesis of Jesus Christ is from the most unlikely of source, a virgin. Now, we call it the virgin birth. We really should call it the virgin conception. The birth is nine months later. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together. Well, that's impossible. You know that's impossible, right? You know how babies are made? It requires a man and a woman. That's a universal, isn't it? So when it doesn't happen, or someone says that, oh, no, it's a virgin birth, you just shake your head and say, no, that's not true. We, we don't know everything in the world, but we know that's not true. And that's what Joseph said. And that's why we have to believe that God is giving us special information, unique information that's not available or exists anywhere else in the world. You see, it all hinges on who Jesus is. Is Jesus like everybody else? Yes or no? Because if he's exactly the same, if there's no difference between him and every other person in the world, then you'd expect his birth to be exactly the same. But if you can say that there's something different about Jesus, then it leads you down the path that there's something different about his birth. 
So you look at his birth. She was found with child from the Holy Spirit. There's your answer. In the past 150 years, the virgin birth has been denounced by many people who call themselves Christians as just impossible. It, just, it doesn't happen. So how can we believe it to be true? Those three words, of or from the Spirit. You see, all you have to do to believe the virgin birth is believe that God is real. Because if God is real and he is the creator, then the virgin birth is just, okay, well, of course you can do that. The problem is that people come to the Bible and say, well, let me see if it's true. Let me see if God does miracles. And if I can accept it, then we'll believe the story. But guess what happens? You never accept it because you become the skeptic. You become the king of the Bible. When I agree with it, it's true. When I don't agree with it, it's not true. But when you come to the Bible, as you should, submitting to God, the creator, the all-powerful creator, when he says, I've created a child without a man, you say, okay. You created the world without anybody. Why can't he create a child without anybody? You see the logic here? Disbelief in the virgin birth is really just disbelief in God. And that's why if you reject the virgin birth, you reject God. You can't have it both ways. You can't say, well, God can create the world, but he can't do this. Well, which is it? Which is harder? The miracle of creation from nothing or the miracle of a virgin conception? So Mary is pregnant from the Holy Spirit, and that's very careful language. Uh, Mary, your wife, from, from that which is conceived in her, uh, in her is, is of the Holy Spirit. That phrase, is of the Holy Spirit, is a very careful Greek phrase. That, that leads all Greek readers to say, this is not the spirit with Mary. This is important because Muslims believe that Christians believe that God and Mary had a child together. So if you ask a, a Muslim, they're going to say, you Christians are terrible because you believe that God came down and had a baby with Mary. But that's not true. We need to know that. The pagans thought that. Remember, like, Zeus would come down, and he'd get some woman pregnant, and then Hercules was born? That's not what happened here. We need to be clear that what the Bible teaches. The Spirit is of the Holy Spirit, not with the Holy Spirit. First of all, it's of the Holy Spirit. The power comes from the Spirit. And secondly, a spirit is not a body. The reason it's a spirit is because it can't be like the pagans. See, the pagans took a body so they could have relationship with a woman. But the spirit, that doesn't work that way. So we need to be clear. And in another text, it says that the spirit overshadowed Mary. Again, showing that this is not a sort of carnal relationship. And though many millions of people believe that, it's not what the Bible teaches. It's something that we don't understand. There are things in the Bible you're never going to understand, and this is one of them. I don't know how it happened. So we sort of put fences around it, and we say, this is something new. This is something unique. This is something that never happened before and will never happen again. And we don't know exactly how it happened, but because that's how things that are new and unique work. And so we trust that what's said here is true because it came from God, came from the Holy Spirit, and it shows us that the Messiah is different from everybody else. 
Not born like everybody else. Not conceived like everybody else. Because he's the chosen one. This is what we call the incarnation. The song says, robed in flesh, the Godhead see. How do you see a spirit? You can't, unless they put on flesh. And so what happens in this passage is that God, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, God himself, puts on a a body, robed in flesh. How? From Mary. So the Son of God existed perfectly. And then he was given a body in the womb of Mary, just like us, the incarnation. So he is God. Remember the text we read this morning? It said, the son will be given to you, and that son will be called Counselor, Everlasting Father. There's one thing I know about sons is that they're not everlasting fathers. The Prince of Peace. In other words, who was it that was born right here in this passage? Just a really great guy who had a touch of divinity? No. God himself. God himself came into Mary's womb and was given a body and grew into the person we call Jesus. But the person was already pre-existent. So what we have to understand about this is that it's different from everybody else because no one else is God. Do you know that? No one else in this world has ever been God or ever will be God. So this here is a special circumstance where God comes down, takes on a body, and because he takes on a body, he's a man. And there's the paradox. Well, is he God or is he man? Both. And this is how it happens. The Holy Spirit brings Christ, brings the Son of God to the womb of Mary and becomes a man, retaining his Godhead, adding humanity. The incarnation is God and man brought together in one person, remaining both God and man. If you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. This is essential. This has always been believed by Christians. Always, everywhere. Leo, who was a pastor in Rome in 450, said, Accordingly, while the distinctness of both natures and substances was preserved, that's God's nature and man's nature, both met in one person. Lowliness was assumed by majesty, weakness by power, mortality by eternity. And in order to pay the debt of our condition, the unchangeable nature was united to the changeable. So that the appropriate remedy for our ills, one and the same mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, might from one element be capable of dying and also from another be incapable. Therefore, in the entire and perfect nature of very man was born very God, whole in what was his, whole in what was ours. You see the miracle? How could he bridge the gap except that he's on both sides of the gap? To bring God and man together, you have to be on both sides. And that's what happens here in the miraculous birth of Christ. It's a real thing. You see, we like sometimes to spiritualize it and be like, oh, this is so nice. This is not nice. This is Mary getting pregnant. You know what happens when you get pregnant? Your life gets more uncomfortable. 
That's why we pray for women who are pregnant, for their health, for their sanity. In other words, Jesus coming to this world was hard work. If Jesus is not real, it's just sort of a myth, and it's nice. What about for us who are in the middle of something difficult? This is where Jesus must be in the dirt with us. A real Christ for a real Christianity. If Jesus did not grow in a womb for nine months and then pass through labor and then have to be cleaned up right afterwards, you know, there's a lot of blood involved in that, and then have to be nursed afterwards, and then have to grow up and be his diapers changed, if that's not real, then we're just talking about sort of ideas. And when real stuff happens to us, like sickness and pain and heartache, that ideal Christianity doesn't cut it. We need a dirty, in-the-dirt kind of Christianity. And that's what a virgin birth gives us. That's what Jesus with flesh gives us. This is what's always been believed. Every Christian, everywhere for all of time, has believed that Christianity is gritty, and that it's God and man combined, a real Christianity. Ignatius of Antioch was the first pastor that we know of after Jesus. His trainer, Ignatius, he was trained by John the Apostle. You don't get closer to Jesus than John the Apostle, right? So you got John, you got Jesus, then you have John, his disciple, who wrote the book of John. Then you have John's disciple. This is 100 A.D. This is about 20 years after the book of Matthew was written. So how old is this stuff we're talking about? Is this sort of fundamentalism made up 100 years ago, or Western Christianity, America, England? Let's go back to the very, very beginning. So we read it here. 20 years later, we have evidence, we have a record of what somebody else said about it. This is Christianity. I do not place my hopes in one who died for me in appearance, but not in reality. Mary did then truly conceive a body which had God inhabiting it. And God the Word was truly born of the Virgin, having clothed himself with a body of like passions with our own. He who formed all men in the womb was himself really in the womb and made for himself a body of the seed of the Virgin, but without any intercourse of man. He was carried in the womb, even as we are, for the usual period of time, and was really born, as we also are, and was in reality nourished with milk and partook of all common meat and drink, even as we do. And when he had lived among men for 30 years, he was baptized, really, and not in appearance. And when he had preached the gospel three years and done signs and wonders, he who was himself the judge was judged by the Jews, falsely so-called, and by Pilate the governor, was scourged, was smitten on the cheek, was spit upon. He wore a crown of thorns and a purple robe. He was condemned. He was crucified in reality and not in appearance, not in imagination, not in deceit. He really died and was buried and rose from the dead. 1,900 years later, we're saying the exact same thing. Why are we saying the exact same thing? Because it's not changed. If it was true when it happened, it's still true. But we've disconnected ourselves from the real Jesus and sort of have the idea of Jesus. And the virgin birth gets us right back down to the nitty-gritty of maternity wards. Of doctors telling you to eat better. 
That's what Mary's doctor told her, of Joseph trying to figure out how to get Mary what she wanted to eat that night. You think that didn't happen? It happens to all women everywhere, and all husbands trying to figure out how to take care of their pregnant wife. First child, that's Joseph. It's Mary, and that's Jesus. We have the kind of faith that comes down to where we are. A prophecy fulfilled. Behold, the virgin shall be with child. That prophecy was given 700 years prior. And bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. That's who Jesus is. God and man united in one person. But what does that mean for us? Okay, great. That's true. It's real. What's the application to us? What did Jesus come to do? So Joseph's an example of how we can be a man. Jesus' nature is how to be a Messiah. What kind of person do you need to be the Messiah? But Jesus' mission. You see, a Messiah is chosen. Chosen to do what? What was Jesus chosen to do? Well, the Bible doesn't leave it up to suggestion. The angel tells Joseph exactly what's going to happen. He says, actually, before he says anything, let's look at this. You know, if you just try to be like Joseph, and if you're a perfect kind of man or a perfect woman, like Joseph was, isn't Joseph just the greatest? Like, there's never anything bad about Joseph. Look what the angel says to Joseph. Uh, and she, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people. Here's the message. Joseph, you are an example for all people everywhere. You need someone to save you. There's something wrong with you, Joseph. You, the best of all men, something broken. You're a sinner. Not the people around you. He said he will save his people from their sins. Not those people who hurt you all the time that, you know, so the patriarchy or feminism or cultural problems. No, it's their own sins. So try to be like Joseph. And when you've gotten to where Joseph is, you still need to be saved. You still need a savior. You need a better Joseph. Joseph's not good enough. You need a better Joseph. That's who Jesus is, right in this very passage. He said, he will bring forth a son, and he shall be called his name Jesus, God with us. Remember how Joseph was just? You know, that's a relative term. In this situation, Joseph did what was right, but guess what Joseph didn't do in other times? He was unjust. So we need a better Joseph. So Jesus shows up, he who knew no sin. Jesus is perfect. There's no one like Jesus because everyone else has their own problems, their own sins. Nobody's perfect. There's a guy named G.K. Chesterton who was a famous British author about 100 years ago. Uh, great book on Christianity, one of the leaders. And the London Times sent out a thing that said, the London Times once sent out an inquiry to famous authors asking the question, what is wrong with the world today? Are we asking the same question? What is, what's the problem with America? And Chesterton is this brilliant Christian thinker. Don't you want to know what a Christian thinker has to say? So Chesterton responded, Dear sir, I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. 
That's Christianity. And that's what's being told to Joseph. Joseph, you need a savior. From what? The Romans? My situation? You know, a pregnant wife? No, from you. Nothing's changed. You know what's wrong with the world? We're what's wrong with the world. And until our pride can be pushed aside and we can look in the mirror and say, I'm what's wrong, we don't need Jesus. Until we say, I'm the problem, then we don't need a savior. So Jesus is the one who saves Joseph, and he's the one who saves us. And why does he do it? Why did Joseph care for Mary? He's compassionate, but he had a human compassion. And his compassion said, Mary, I care for you, so I'm going to divorce you. Jesus, on the other hand, says, no, no, I don't just care for you. I love you. And because I love you, I'm not going to divorce you. I'm actually going to go out of my way to make sure we're together. You see, Joseph's love's not good enough. The just love is not good enough. You need Jesus' kind of love who says, I'll come to where you are in your mess, and instead of treating like you like you deserve, I'll go out of my way, I'll do everything I need to do so we can stay together. That's what Jesus offers. He said, God with us. Joseph needed courage, didn't he? To stand up to the critics in his society, to step out on faith and take care of this child that wasn't his but not as much courage as Jesus needed. You see, Jesus left everything that was perfect to come down to this earth to suffer and to die. What kind of person will do that? To take on every problem, to suffer every punishment. Other faiths don't have that kind of Savior. Only our faith has a Savior who had to risk everything for us. When we can see the risk they took for us, it's meaningless the risk we have to take. A savior of Joseph, how? By becoming God with us. Substituting himself for us. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Do you want to be saved? You need a savior. John Stott says, sin is substituting ourselves for God. Salvation is God substituting himself for us. That's what birth of Jesus is. It's him coming down in our place. Matthew 20, Jesus says it later. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give give his life a ransom for many. You see what Jesus is doing here? He said the only way to save those people is to become one of those people and then die for those people. The African church fathers would say that he was made like us so that we could be made like him. You give up on this, you've given up on everything. You're like, well, I believe Jesus died, but I don't believe that that, that virgin birth stuff. No, no, you, you don't get to choose between who Jesus is. Do you want to be like Jesus? Do you want to be with Jesus? Then he had to be with us first. He had to be made like us. He had to die for us. Emmanuel, God with us. Now let me give you a warning right here. God's already with everybody. You know God's everywhere? 
Here's the warning. God's either with you and against you or with you and for you. Some of you here call yourselves Christians, but God's not for you. Romans chapter 1 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. You don't hide from God. God doesn't ignore you. God knows you. Is God for you or against you? That's what this passage is saying. It's saying a Savior has come to be with you. That's the hope. But if there's a Savior, then there must be a lost people. Don't think God ignores you because you don't believe in him, because you don't trust him. He knows you. His wrath is against you. And until you realize that, all the church services and all the Christmas services and all the good works will do nothing. So the hope is that God is with us and for us. That's the hope that was given to Joseph. He's your Savior. He's with you to save you. John Wesley created, who is the founder of the Wesleyan denomination, as he lay dying, he uttered his last words. When you're dying, you're holding on to something. It's something that will last through death, right? Like, you know this is the end. There's no more work to be done. There's no more family. It's what's going to get you through? Now, some people have nothing, and you see the despair. So John Wesley's last words, this is what was, he was holding on to as he passed over. He said, best of all, God is with us. You're going to die. You're going to die. One day, maybe today, I'm going to visit you in the hospital. And I'm going to watch as they pull the plug. What are you going to say then? Is my family here? Who cares? You're dying. They're not going with you. What are you going to say in that moment? There's only one thing. God is with us. That's it. You can ignore death. You can put it off. You can think about other things. But one day, all you're going to have left is if God's with you or God's against you. And this passage is saying, God can be for you. You go all the way to the end of the book of Matthew, the very last words of the book of Matthew, and what does it say? Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, in this life and the next. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the good news. He came into this world so he could be with us to the end of the world. You've got nothing else. Everything else will die with you. But Jesus offers you something more. Born of a virgin, lived as a man, died as a man, rose as the Son of God. And he promises you that if you will give up on this world and trust in him, he will always be with you. Right now, tomorrow, no matter what you do or don't do, God doesn't need your help, he'll be with you. And when you die, he'll still be with you. And then you'll wake up in the next life with God. Let's pray.